So there's this whole concept of clean versus unclean things that is pervasive in the Hebrew Bible. And it's leaked into our own Christian culture. The, the idea that some things or even people are unclean and should, quote, be dealt with has led to abuse of power within the church. And it is wrong. Jesus himself fought against it, actively resisted it, and preached against this abuse of power. The people he declared clean were the poor and marginalized and outcast. And the people he called unclean, literally called whitewashed tombs of filth, were the religious hierarchy. So we're going to explore the concept of clean versus unclean today. Like all the rest of the law, we're going to apply the tool I introduced you to last week. First, we'll identify the underlying cultural norm. Then we'll look to see how God is moderating that norm. We'll compare those two to determine the direction God is moving the Israelites. And we'll use that direction as our guide, our takeaway from the passage. These laws are mostly found in Leviticus 11 through 15, with a goodly chunk in a couple of chapters of Deuteronomy, and there's some mentions in various places in Exodus and Numbers. About a third of the clean versus unclean passages have to do with which animals are clean and therefore edible, and which animals are unclean and therefore not to be eaten. The overarching concept is found in several places, but one is in Leviticus 20. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. I am the Lord your God, who has set you apart from the nations. You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between clean and unclean birds. Do not defile yourselves. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. God said if they didn't follow his teaching, the promised land itself would vomit them out. Why on earth would dietary restrictions have anything to do with this? Well, see that word holy? That word holy, kadosh, means set apart, especially being set apart for a sacred purpose. God is working hard to separate his people from the pagan nations around them, and he's focusing especially hard on what they do with their bodies and what they put into their bodies. Interesting, huh? What they do with their bodies counts a lot. In a way, He's teaching them to love themselves. This apparently is integral to learning to love God. Jesus saw it this way too. And loving yourself includes loving and respecting your own body. It includes treating your body right. On the surface, the dietary laws are pretty easy to understand. They tell us what the norm is for the Israelites. God tells them to stop eating diseased meat or meat that is not fresh. He tells them to stop eating carrion and raptors. All this he calls unclean. God moderates their norm by giving them detailed lists of clean foods like 
cattle and fish. And he explains that anything unclean will make you or your cooking utensils or your clothing unclean if you touch it, which makes perfect sense what, now that we know about germs, right? So obviously the direction God is going is to get them to only eat the things that are good for them. And that is a takeaway for us. It is part of being his holy people. Loving ourselves includes how we feed and care for our bodies, which, according to God, also affects the health of the very landscape we live in. If we don't care for our bodies well, the land itself will vomit us out. Caring for our bodies is obviously a good idea, but why is it such a big deal? Why is it so fundamental that huge swaths of the law are devoted to it? Modern psychology might give us a clue. In his book, The Righteous Mind, well-known social psychologist, Dr. Jonathan Haidt, describes an experiment by Alex Jordan, a grad student at Stanford. Alex stood next to a garbage can on campus and asked folks to fill out a short survey. Before some of the folks came, he sprayed what he called fart spray into the trash can and made the whole area stink. Turns out, folks who had to smell the fart spray while they filled out the survey made harsher moral judgments than the folks who didn't have to smell the fart spray. Another researcher at the University of Toronto asked some of his subjects to wash their hands before filling out a questionnaire on things like pornography and drug use. Those who washed their hands were more moralistic in their responses. That same researcher found what he called the Macbeth effect. People who had to think about their own transgressions or copy down accounts of other people's transgressions were more likely to choose hand wipes or other cleaning products when given a choice of products to take home afterwards. Moral transgression makes us feel physically dirty. It makes us feel as if we ourselves are a noxious smell. God knows our bodies are linked very closely with our minds and our souls and our spirits. Cleaning and protecting and caring for our bodies has a direct impact on our spirits. It somehow helps us turn ourselves towards God. There is spiritual strength in pursuing the clean and avoiding the unclean. When God begins to talk about clean and unclean people, it somehow gets taken completely out of context by weak, power-hungry people. These self-righteous folk love identifying and excoriating others whom they deem unclean. But that's not where God is going with all this. It doesn't take much reading in Leviticus before you realize that for the most part, when God talks about being unclean, God is talking about communicable diseases. He teaches the Israelites how to spot infection and avoid spreading it. He teaches them how to identify and kill mold, which not only destroys belongings, but we now know can destroy your health. A big part of God's lesson in basic health care involves not touching, oozing, or bleeding sores. God keeps it totally simple for the Israelites. He doesn't write in a bunch of rules about when bleeding or oozing is normal and when it's not. Instead, he says if 
anyone, male or female, is having any kind of bodily discharge, normal or not, treat it as unclean. Don't touch it. Stay away from them until the discharge has stopped. So these are pretty easy to understand using our backpack tool. The norm is that the Israelites live in close quarters and in old moldy tents where infections can spread like wildfire. God is teaching them basic rules that will keep them much safer and much healthier and will stop the spread of disease. And he's keeping it very simple. There is no book, no checklist to refer to. He's keeping it so simple that everybody, high to low, can keep it in their minds. Our takeaway is that we too should take reasonable precautions to avoid catching or spreading disease. Now, that's quite timely, isn't it? I think it speaks directly to our current mask wearing issue. I think God is clearly saying that our individual rights to freedom of action must be curtailed by reasonable actions to protect ourselves and others. Can you see why it's important to approach the Mosaic Law this, this way rather than to wholesale throw out the dietary and health laws as not applicable to Christians? God has a lot to say here that still very definitely applies to us. So this is about healthcare and safety, not about people themselves being morally unclean. Another way these laws have been twisted is to say that they show that women are far more unclean than men and are therefore to be strictly controlled by men. People don't usually say it in so many words, but the attitude is definitely pervasive in Christian culture. Here's an example of where that's coming from. Leviticus 12, 2 through 5, says that after a woman gives birth to a boy, she is unclean for seven days. Whereas if she gives birth to a daughter, she is unclean for 14 days, twice as long. Doesn't that imply that a female is more unclean than a male? Uh, no. Nice try, patriarchy, but no. In fact, the clue is right there in the middle of the passage. Leviticus 12.2 says a woman is unclean for seven days after she bears a baby boy. Then in the very next verse, it tells us why she is released after seven days. That verse says, because on the eighth day, the boy must be circumcised. And that law was established way back in Genesis 17:12, more than 500 years earlier. Every male must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. So the mother has to be able to bring him back into camp that day. That obviously doesn't apply to female babies. So God establishes a two-week period of uncleanness when the baby is a girl. So why the difference? It doesn't say, but my take on this is that God is being merciful and kind to women, both in the times of their monthly periods and in the days after childbirth. You see, God's instruction in Leviticus 13.46, for anyone found to be unclean for any reason, is that they must live alone outside of the camp during their period of uncleanness. Now, any woman who has had PMS or suffered from menstrual cramps will tell you that this sounds like a wonderful idea. Complete rest from any chores, far away from any other kids or husbands or people. 
And any woman who has birthed a baby will tell you how important it is to be able to bond with that baby and to work out the difficulties of breastfeeding and just generally adjust to mothering while in pain, not to mention being able to sleep in any moment she can catch. God is not being punitive by expanding the time a woman has alone after the birth of a daughter. He's being kind. It's almost as if he's saying, I'm sorry I have to shorten the time with your son since he has to be circumcised on the eighth day, but I won't shorten your time with your daughter unnecessarily. There's also a second part to each commandment having to do with when a woman can resume worship in the tabernacle. She can't go to the sanctuary for 33 more days, and this brings the total to 40 days. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but the number 40 pops up a lot in the Bible. At the flood, it rained for 40 days. Moses is up on Mount Sinai, 40 days. And there's going to be several more important 40s as we go along. The number 40 for biblical writers stands for a long time, just generally a long time. In this case, God is giving the woman a, quote, long time after the birth of her son when she must stay home. And the time for a daughter, as before, is simply doubled to be consistent with the days of uncleanness. I don't think it's meant to imply anything nefarious or denigrating to women. I think this is the original maternity leave policy. That said, there is undoubtedly tremendous bias against women throughout the law. Penalties for women are often much harsher than those for men, especially with respect to sexual transgressions. But as we have seen, this is reflective of the existing culture in the A&E. God is working within their harsh culture and moderating it. Here's an example, one which is often misinterpreted and is therefore perplexing. This passage is used to portray God as cruel and barbaric, but that's not what's happening here at all. In Numbers 5, God commands that a man who suspects his wife of having an affair can bring her to the priest. The priest is to give her poison water to drink. If she survives, then she is innocent of the charges. Now that sounds like the Salem witch trials, doesn't it? What in the world is God doing here? And that's the clue right there. God is doing this. We forget when we read these passages that God is actually physically, visibly present just a few yards from where all this is happening. They are quite literally doing this ritual in the physical presence of God. God set this text test up as a mercy to the woman. Otherwise, the jealous husband could just rile everyone up with his accusations and incite the mob to stone her without trial or justice. How do you prove you didn't have an affair? Right? God is setting up a way for the woman to be spared when she cannot prove her innocence. God, in his holy and immediate presence, will protect her from the poison. And that's the difference between this and the Salem witch trials. In Salem, literally thousands of years later, and in a completely different culture, those poor women were subjected to similar ordeals by men who were not ordained by God, who were not operating in God's holy presence, nor on direct orders from God. The whole thing was a travesty, a terrible parody of God's original mercy. 
To twist these passages so they devalue women and girls has done terrible damage to our collective well-being as normal, healthy people. We in the Western Christian culture have taken God's words intended for our health and benefit and twisted them into something ugly and repressive. Don't fall for that. And always remember, being unclean was a temporary state. Leviticus 14 has a whole series of instructions about how someone who has been examined by the priest and has been declared clean is able to re-enter the community. And as you might guess, there's a ritual for that. You can read the details yourself, but what's important is that the person offers two animals in sacrifice. One is a guilt offering and the other as a sin offering. It doesn't say anything else about it, so we are left to figure this out on our own. How would a sin offering and a guilt offering fit into God's economy of love and grace. We didn't do anything sinful by getting sick, and there's no need to feel guilt. But remember, this is a culture that believes illness is a punishment from the gods. So it's important to God that the entire community understand that God is not punishing this person. The community needs to see evidence of his abounding mercy and his acceptance of the person who was ill. I think these rituals are meant to make it clear to the entire community that there is absolutely no excuse for shunning or excluding them. If they're acceptable to God, they must be acceptable to everyone. What is the takeaway for us then? Well, the norm for the Israelites is not to have any distinction between clean and unclean. God teaches them that he is, by definition, clean, so they also need to be clean. Clean in a physical sense means doing the things they can to stay healthy, eating right, avoiding contact with disease, and protecting each other from disease. So the direction is to separate the clean from the unclean in their lives and to understand that God provides a way to clean us. So for us, we too need to examine what it is in our lives that makes us feel unclean and makes us feel separated from God. This begins with physical things we're doing that make us feel dirty or less than or as if we need to hide. These are things that make us feel shame. God is the antithesis of shame. To God, we are wholly beautiful and delightful. And just like the Israelites had a path to God that was pretty simple, it just involved a few rituals, we also have a path to God that is simple and straightforward. In God, all we have to do is lay down whatever is unclean and change direction. That's it. Through God's grace, we are made clean. As a side note, laying those things down can be very, very difficult. They can be impossible without help. We as Christians must feel free to get counseling or to get the medical attention we need. We must never, ever stigmatize people for seeking help. And we must never force folks to only go to, quote, Christian counselors or doctors. There are lots of whitewashed tombs out there. 
we must encourage folks to find the most expert and skilled help they can without a membership test. Think of it as folks going outside the camp while they're getting well. Okay, enough about clean and unclean. Let's talk about justice for a minute. What happens if one of the Israelites doesn't respect these laws and commandments? Well, obviously, they'd be putting themselves and possibly their entire community at risk. So what are the consequences of this? I remember when Shelby and I traveled to St. John in the Virgin Islands some years ago. After a while, we realized that no matter what your infraction was, the penalty was always $1,000. If you park in a reserved parking spot, $1,000. If you trespass on a private beach, $1,000. Littering, $1,000. When one of us would forget to wash our plate, we'd look at each other and say, $1,000, and then dissolve in laughter. And honestly, the Israelites aren't too far off from this. Just like the rest of the laws, God keeps this all super simple. For the most part, God sets up two basic consequences, either being cut off for the, from the community for a time, or for more serious transgressions, death by stoning. Remember to think about what the norm is in this culture. The norm is death or maiming cutting off of tongues and hands and noses. You can think Game of Thrones culture here. In this culture, just taking an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth would be a moderation of the more customary and extreme consequences. So here are the things that resulted in a sentence of death. Murder, include, including knowingly keeping an animal that gores people to death attacking or cursing your parents, which, as you know, is bucking the base social structure and authority, kidnapping, bestiality, sacrificing your children to the idol Molech, and committing adultery, promiscuity, and incest that we talked about last week. That's a pretty short list, actually. These are the things we'd expect to be punishable by death because we understand that these things are undermining their basic patriarchal tribal social structure or undermining their primary goal of being fruitful and multiplying as quickly as possible. These have to do with the survival of the community as a whole. The survival of the individual will be subordinate to the survival of the community. But there are a few more things punishable by death that don't fit these expected categories. Breaking the Sabbath is punishable by death. God is serious about this. Observing the Sabbath is a weekly, visible, and hugely important sign of trusting God's provision and of releasing others, such as servants and family members, to God, rather than keeping them working for our own purposes. We must relinquish our own power and control and give it over to God, even if what we are working so hard for is God's work that he's given us to do. Keeping on working is a form of worshiping ourselves. It is a form of worshiping other sources of power, such as money. And as the writer of Timothy points out, worshiping this sort of power is the root of all evil. Sabbath is about power. Whose power is it, ours or God? 
Are we achieving our goals on our own power? Or can we lay it down for a day and trust God? Anyone who approaches the tent of meeting, the holy place and the holy of holies, but is not an ordained priest, must be put to death. I actually think it would happen without any action on the part of the Israelites. We'll see a time or two in scripture where people accidentally get too close and are struck dead by the sheer holiness of God. And here's another one. Being a necromancer or a spiritist is punishable by death. Now those two words mean basically the same thing in Hebrew. So this word necromancer is fascinating. In English, the word means one who communicates with the dead. In Hebrew, it actually means mumble. It is the word for wineskin or waterskin because of that glug, glug, glug sound they make when you use them. It became the word for necromancer or medium because of the mumbling words spoken in a seance. In fact, no matter whether the necromancer is fake or not, no matter whether the dead are really speaking or not, the problem is that the dead are being consulted rather than God. And this is anathema to God. It's just like idol worship. It is not to be done. And this one is related. Anyone who entices you to worship other gods must be put to death. That makes sense. God is working so hard to wean the Israelites off these other gods, and their influence is insidious and pervasive. God is quite literally as serious as a heart attack about this. Anyone who curses God must be put to death. That one's pretty obvious. Cursing God is the meaning of the word blasphemy. And that's it. That's the end of the list of things punishable by death. Notice how all these last few super important laws, the ones punishable by death, are actually for the people's protection and well-being. God is not against us. He's for us. So this is the way this is all administered. Serious matters are moved up the hierarchy of leaders, and now there's a layer of priests who also have a responsibility for judging, and eventually the most serious cases are decided by Moses himself. If anyone decides they don't like the judgment and don't comply, that is punishable by death for obvious reasons. That goes back to the importance of the societal structure. Now remember, when these things seem harsh, that with very few exceptions, there are only two punishments, either being cut off for a period of time or death. Death is when the act is so egregious, it endangers the community as a whole, either literally or structurally or spiritually. Everything else results in being cut off for a time. Where murder is involved, the execution of the murderer is done by the designated blood relative of the family that was wronged. In scripture, this person is called the avenger of blood. At other times, such as when the whole community is wronged, the whole community stones the person who must die. And that's pretty much it. Heavy topics, sobering. But in the end, it boils down to two things. The Israelites must not worship or trust or rely on any other god, not themselves, not their dead ancestors, not the idols of the nations around them, nothing and no one but Yahweh. And the Israelites must be fruitful and multiply. 
while at the same time respecting the tribal order, and that means no promiscuity, no adultery, no challenging or blurring the patriarchal lines, and no unhealthy or dangerous practices. These two basic things are absolutely necessary for the survival of the nation. And lastly, remember, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. It moves, it's directional. So when someone tries to control or harm you by saying the Bible says thus and so and showing you a verse, always remember that the Holy Spirit is directional, not static. Always ask, uh, what was the context in which God was speaking? And what was the norm for those people? And what direction was God moving with this command? It's through this lens that we can understand all of the law. In our breakout sessions, we're going to talk about how clean and unclean show up in our lives and what we can do about it. I hope you got to watch the Brene Brown video linked in the study guide, but if you didn't, there's a quick synopsis you can glance through while I'm getting the breakout groups set up. There you are. Be sure to turn your uh, mics and videos on so that we can all talk unless you've got background noise happening. Um, this was, uh, I think, shame and vulnerability are probably by their very natures, tender topics. Mm -hmm. and I hope that you experienced grace and kindness and safety in your, in your groups. Um, and I hope you had time to scratch the surface. What did Continue the discussion. What did you all um, have to offer here? Ross got cut off in the middle of a sentence. I wonder if we could get him to repeat what he was saying and finish his thought. Yeah, so the, the general thought was, you know, shame is something you can get into a cycle all alone. And to break out of it, you do have to a lot of times show vulnerability to others and have help from others. Unfortunately, our society uh, being somewhat of a built on a frontier and self-reliant society doesn't put a lot of uh, value in, in some of that. In fact, uh, words like uh, socialism and so forth, where a, you know, the community is built on very close relationships and co-health, co uh, they're, kind of, they're kind of bad terms in our society. So that that leads it all into uh, we there's not a lot of support uh, for mental health in our society uh, to to help us out and I think God you know God wants it to be the other way. I and like you mentioned before, even our healthcare system mental for mental health they don't they don't a lot of insurances don't offer it or don't cover it or don't cover it as much. I mean, if a person has, you know, a heart problem or cancer, they can get all kinds of help from their insurance company. But if they need counseling, sometimes that's not even covered. Yep. And I think your mental health is just as important as your physical health, if not more so. I know my daughter right now, she's, she's got ADHD. And we can't get her meds covered. We have to pay out of pocket for those. And that's, you know, it's so unfortunate. We've been in Madison and since 87, 
we belong to the same HMO, they were the first to offer complementary medicine, like um, wellness class, meditation, yoga, um, mental health. We get massages. I mean, they offered that long before the other one. So fortunately for us, our youngest, um, well, the oldest and youngest of either um, ADHD, depression, Fortunately, we've had that care, and it's it's unfortunate that you know they and others like that aren't used as models for right. the country, you know, because we've been very blessed with that. And so, to me, it's hard, you know. I'm like, I don't know. It's it's unfortunate. So, luckily, we've had those services, medicines covered, you know, copays, whatever. So. Is your insurance like a national health insurance or is it a local health insurance? Local. local. And it's yeah. only local to her because I'm in Wisconsin and I don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. I think that, I think that, um, that it's interesting that you mentioned alternative medicine, Rhonda, because, because that's kind of what God's talking about here, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and what he's calling us to in the Israelite society, the priests were the doctors. Um, they were the ones who determined if someone was sick, if someone was well, and what to do about it, all that stuff. Um, and, and clearly they would have healers and midwives that would um, be within the community. But what God was calling them to hear in the law, in the discussions about clean and unclean, were calling them, as Ross said, to help each other, you know? And... Um, I think that's a lot of what alternative medicine is, is, is just formalized ways in which we are called to help and feed and sustain each other. Um, but I also think that um, we often prevent ourselves from getting help from whatever source. And that very often what prevents us is shame. And that very often that shame has been defined by those unspoken and unwritten rules we've absorbed from our culture. And I want to, I would like y'all's um, insights into the antidotes to that shame. To what's pre what to the places where we not that things aren't offered, but to the places where we are preventing ourselves from getting help. To always be self-reliant is a big one, at least in my family. I mean, you just don't growing up, you just didn't show weakness. Um, and that's a big problem because you have to depend on others. That's the way we're built. And why, why don't we? In my family, when you showed a weakness, well, then they just went for the jugular. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It, was, it was an opportunity to be taken even more advantage of than you were already being taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. yep. I think it also is controlled to a certain extent by the culture in which we live. Um, for instance, um, 
the military, um, big corporations, you know, ex- they have these expectations of uh, people, you know, well, you aren't um, qualified for this kind of a job because you're going to therapy or, you know, or these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that tends to control, um, you know, whether, what, what we do with ourselves, you know, and how we think of ourselves. So, um, which is, is sad, but it, it does happen. And it's like I said, in our breakout group, I, I do hope that I have hopes for our culture, uh, no matter what it is that we are, uh, learning that it's okay to, um, uh, not to be weak, but to rely on each other, to be vulnerable, that, um, that shows that, uh, we are relying on a higher power and on each other. And that brings us closer together. There's a more cohesiveness. And when we do that. um, And I think it's really important to remember that vulnerability is not weakness. Right. Right. Um, Vulnerability is strength. You have to be strong enough to allow yourself to be vulnerable with other people. And And to admit. admit. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and I, I really liked in the video the difference that she pointed out between shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, shame is saying, I am whatever. I am a bad mom, a bad sister, a bad friend, a bad whatever. I am an alcoholic. I am, you know, whatever. Um, I am worthless. I am all these things that we say to ourselves that causes us, it leads to depression, it leads to suicide, it leads to, um, you know, other bad behaviors, um, promiscuity, I'm worthless, so I might as well go ahead and put it out there, you know, all those kind of things. Whereas guilt, if it's true God-given guilt and not put on you from, you know, it's not put on you from society and from your pastor and from your mom or whatever, but true God-given guilt leads to repentance, leads to change. Um, leads yeah. To I like saying, to use the word this is for conviction as a difference. You know, I, I like to use the word yeah. conviction as a difference. I think God convicts us. I don't it's think God ever guilt. puts guilt on us. I like that. I like that a lot, but you know, if it's true from God, you know, I've done this wrong thing and I need to change this wrong thing, then it'll cause change. So but I think when you ask the question, what can we do about it? I think what's really important for us to do is to have compassion and love, not just for others, but for ourselves too. And show that compassion and love and empathy and, and understanding and to give that across the board to everybody, including ourselves. Yes. I, I think that I agree. And I think that um, it might be also helpful to talk about like specifically, what does that look like when someone reaches out to you and is being vulnerable? And I think it, you know, I think we all know what it, what it feels like to be vulnerable and how risky it feels, right? 
but I'm not sure that we spend enough time thinking about how do we respond to someone who comes to us and is vulnerable? I think it can, it can be scary. It can be scary to take on that, um, shall we say, responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, and I mean, that's where the, like, the person who is receiving this, this information or whatever, this, um, uh, uh, this, you know, and trying to help with this situation, it's scary because I, you know, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. I have not taken Stephen minister training. I don't know if any of you have, but I do know one of the things in Stephen ministry training, which is that's a lot of that, uh, is that they don't necessarily give advice. They just listen, which is what Julia said earlier, they just listen and they give that person an outlet. And um, that's something that we have to remember, remain, you know, if we're receiving this, that we have to remember that we are not expected to solve this. We're just to, I mean, for me, the answer to question number two about where is God calling us in this was to love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think also you need to, when someone shares with you, <clears throat> you need to respect them and keep it to yourself mm -hmm. because that's their story and their burden that they're trying to share. So I put on number three, how is vulnerability the path through shame? And my answer was allowing others we trust to support us and help mm -hmm. us with our struggles. We all have struggles, and if we share our needs with others, we lessen our personal burdens, but we should choose safe individuals to share with and protect our hearts. Because yeah. you can't just blurt something out to everybody. I shared some very um, intimate things with our group that I have shared with others in life, but you know, this is videotaped, so I don't want to share it with this group, but I feel very comfortable with this group. And so I wouldn't have a problem with that. It's just I don't know who's out there in video land. Yep. And so I choose to keep it to myself. But I experienced exactly what we're talking about in our small group when I shared was listening and compassion and I hope I didn't shock anybody or hurt anybody, um, but mm -mm. it was it was a blessing to me to be able to share that and know that these are trusted people. I think that that's super important. That it recognizing that it is at its base an exchange of trust. Mm. This conversation and this presence with people. And often I find that when, that we, you know, we sense how each other are feeling and we can sense in other people when they're stressed, when they're shame, when they're feeling shame, when they're feeling vulnerable, you know, and they're not speaking to us about it. They're not getting help. They're not speaking out. And, um, you know, it's a, 
it needs to be the conversation needs to be an invitation mm. it needs yeah. i think that all we need to do is be present i i know that parker palmer in one of his books talked about when he was so incredibly depressed one time and he could not get out of this depression and he had a friend who came by every afternoon and this friend never said anything to him about his depression what the friend did was washed his feet and left every <laughs> afternoon and that made all the difference in the world for parker and he did come out of that depression eventually um, and so i think that when we worry about you know well what if i i'm not qualified and like barb said i haven't had the training but but we have within us an instinct and the holy spirit just like the bible says the holy spirit will give us the words when the time comes the holy spirit will also give us the actions when the time comes and if you screw it up you screwed it up you know live with it you can you can learn from it you know but but the basics are be present. You don't have to speak. You can just be present. And if they're already speaking and sharing, sometimes if they're not speaking and sharing, they will share simply because you are silent and are supporting them. If they are, <coughs> don't try to fix it. Just be present and listen deeply. So just make sure you're hearing them correctly. That's all. Just make sure by, you know, saying back to them every once in a while when they stop for breath, say, I, I think <laughs> you're feeling thus and so, and I can, you know, I hear what you're saying about this and that, you know, it's just very short, but just, just an establishing the link and reassuring them that you are actually listening to them, that you're not thinking of a response, you know? Yep. And the, and the other thing that you can do is as you're listening is actually consciously open yourself to the holy spirit you can pray silently and listen at the same time you can and and that pay attention to those urges the impulse that you hear um the and and if a response comes it will come not from your head. It will come from behind you. It's that voice behind you that says, I will be behind you telling you to go right or go left. Um, it's that voice behind you, not the voice up here. It's not even the voice in your heart. And so if you hear that voice behind you, which, which is to me is the, is the Lord. When, if you hear the voice in whatever, however you recognize the Lord, Feel free to respond. Feel free. It will be something that will be reframing the issue for the person. People very often draw a big black border around their problem and stake it into the ground so it mm -hmm. cannot be moved. And what we can do is look for the direction God is moving. Same as in this whole series of lessons. Look for the direction God is moving. Look for the direction that God is will they will find god as opposed to finding death and despair and so when you speak back to them you're not trying to fix it you're just trying to point them in a better direction doesn't have to be the right direction 
just a better direction. And I take from this verse, there's a verse in the Bible that I think is the message that we're trying to give to people who are being vulnerable with us. And that is lift up your head so you can see help on the horizon. I had a question for you, Gail. Okay, that's the end of kind of formal class, but let's keep talking. I heard you know, Ross. Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, my my mom's been in rehab. She had a fall a while back. She's doing better, but she was in rehab and in quarantine for two weeks. And this really uh, this speaks to uh, a lot everybody in general. But mm-hmm. I could not be physically with her for two weeks um and um there's i think there's such a long can you speak Uh, up a little russ i can barely hear you i said when when you're not able to physically be there to help comfort somebody there's obviously a loss there and and i you know i felt it i'm sure you felt we've all felt it um my concrete example of my mother being quarantined and rehab uh that's a concrete example of a physical separation that cannot be breached uh due due to uh you know COVID and all the precautions around it and it is just created obviously it's created more problems in this area and it's prevented uh, a lot of the uh, help and solution mm-hmm. and it just it, it you know i it it just i it really actually that's depressing to me sometimes yes we and and we have to help each other lift up our heads and see where there are alternatives and encourage each other, you know, so that we can make it through. This is hard times, physically and mentally. Before we lose anybody else, can I make a shout out to Gail real quick? I don't know if you guys know this, but two years ago yesterday, Gail was ordained in the most awesome ceremony at Journey and Perfect Health or Journey and Perfect Faith, community, mm-hmm. and it was just awesome. Aww, happy ordination anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. Thank you, everybody. It was a big day, you know, and um, it was uh, a very, very informal kind of thing because that's how I wanted it. And um, I had um, recently graduated from seminary and uh, several of the seminarians, young folks, you know, these are young folks, um, had had taken the lead in helping me plan the thing, and they um, helped plan it, and they sang, and there was, you know, people got up and spoke, and it was just really, really precious to me. Um, one of the most, uh, I have hanging in my, in my office here, uh, a shawl, a really pretty woven Um, shawl that uh, one of the gals gave me who is a a midwife and she had she had recently um, changed careers and 
she gave me that shawl, which is called a rebosa, but and it is it is used to wrap around and comfort women in childbirth. It's used to turn them when they need to be in a different position. And she also gave me her fetoscope, which is used to hear the heartbeat. And those gifts I have sitting where I can see them because they are emblematic to me of what we are all called to be to each other, you know? And the words that people spoke that day were, are words that I carry in my heart. So I don't think we should underestimate the impact our presence and our words have on each other, all of us. Gail, hmm. I was going to suggest that if anybody um, needs a concrete example of what you've been talking about, watch the program Hoarders and watch the counselors that are involved and even to some extent, the um, the cleanup specialists, because I don't know if they've just learned from the counselors that are involved, the therapists that are involved or what, but they all have that knowledge of how to actively listen. And um, I love the one, and I can't think of her name right now, but the long blonde, she's got long blonde hair. So she's the only one on there that's got long blonde hair. So if you watch it and she's the counselor that happens to be on there, um, she's my favorite. And she will listen. And as they're saying things, she'll nod her head or she'll say, mm -hmm, you know, just acknowledging that she's listening to what they say. And then when they stop for a moment, she'll, she'll say, like Gail was talking about. Now, let me make sure I've got this straight. I'm hearing that you're telling me you don't feel valued for blah, 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 or, you know, whatever they said, or, you know, I'm hearing that you just got overwhelmed and couldn't handle all the stress or, you know, whatever they've just been unburdening themselves to her. Then she repeats it back in a different way that, you know, and usually the people who have been talking and they, you know, maybe we're talking for five minutes and she gives one sentence and they go, yeah, that, you know, and it helps them understand where their thinking is as well as her understanding them. And I think it's just one of the most fantastic, the, the, the therapists they have on there are some of the best I've ever seen, <laughs> honestly, to be able to do what they do. And to they go into a home that is absolutely, now my house is a mess, but they go into houses that are, you know, six feet high of mess. And underneath it is all the rat droppings and all the dirt and, you know, really disgusting things. And they walk into that house and don't condemn those people. You want to see empathy. You want to see, you want to see this today's lesson in action. Watch hoarders. That's a great analogy, Shirley, because that's exactly what you're doing. You're walking by Barb. You're walking into, into people's, lives into their hearts they're letting you in even though there's six feet of dirt there and all kinds of disgusting things underneath and and it is precious and yeah. holy space we need to take our shoes off you know um so i but it's not rocket science either you don't have to have special training to do this it's this simple to be here for each other and we're built to do that God ordained us all to do this. And so we're going to be able to do it. We don't, we don't, it's good to have, to read and to have skills and to practice, but don't be afraid. 
to open your eyes. It's just like those cleaning specialists. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they didn't have necessarily psychological training. I mean, their training is in garbage and biohazards and, you know, organizing and cleaning. And yet they have this rapport with those people and they don't shame them and they don't, you know, put guilt on them. They, they try to give them control and they try to get them to think in a different way. I love it. I love it. Yes. I was going to say, um, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Julia. I was going to say, um, Gail knows this. I ha I'm part of a crafting group and that group is a lifeline for me. It's been at St. Phillips since 2000, August of 2000. And right now we're in COVID, so we're just doing Zoom meetings. And sometimes there's a lot of people and most times there's just a few, but those people have helped me as much as my counselors. Um, with the situation I shared with our group, at one time I was going to counseling three times a week, Monday, Tuesday, and Saturday to work through my issues. And sometimes for all day collaboratives with about eight therapists. Um, and it was a long time. I started in 2008. I still see the collaboratives once a year. They wanna know what's going on with me and where I'm at and how I'm going and the work that I'm trying to accomplish. Um, but a lot of the hard work was also done with my girlfriends where because I don't have childhood memories. And one of the things is suddenly something will come up and I will share something. But it's because I know it's a safe place. And some of these women I've known 20 years and some of them I've known three months, you know. But it's so nice to have a group of people that you can feel comfortable with. It's a so very real need that we all, yeah. it, this is, we're talking about real humanity. We're talking about where the rubber meets the road. We're talking about the basics of what God is trying to teach the Israelites and what God is trying to teach us. So don't, don't hold back your humanity. Don't hold back your gifts. These are gifts you automatically have. So I'm going to uh, have to go here. But I love you all. Thank you for being there for each other.